So let's read together Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had took sorry, all he had, and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into this field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house Um, Sorry, uh, as he came near and drew to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with his prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for, his, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, This parable comes at the tail end of chapter 15, and it shows up, remember I've told this to you before, the key to understanding a lot of scripture is looking at it within its context. Don't just pluck this parable out, try to see why he's even offering this parable. And when you go back to the last time somebody said something to Jesus, you see that he is giving, he gives three parables in a row in chapter 15, all in response to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the scribes are upset because they've seen Jesus attracting to him a lot of people who are lower on the social rung in Israel. Because, you see, the Israelites, uh, the Pharisees, it wasn't even just that they were prejudiced and bigots. As much as it was, they really believed this is exactly how God operates. And I'll put this, this picture up on the screen. They had this understanding that the world was hierarchical. And at the top of the ladder was God. And just below God were the patriarchs, you know, Moses and Abraham. And just below them would be the Pharisees and the leaders and the righteous people. And then somewhere at the very bottom were all the squalor, right? The poor, the, the, the um, tax collectors, the socially unacceptable and marginalized were at the bottom. So when they see this guy who claims to be a prophet, Jesus, who would be up at the top there with the Pharisees and leaders, 
and he is interacting with these people below, it interrupts their hierarchy, and they don't like it. So they start grumbling about it. So the next three parables, in response to this grumbling, Jesus offers three parables. And those parables are incredibly important because the grumbling is this. Who is fit to ascend the hill of the Lord? Who has the right to speak to, to, to the prophets? And who should the prophets be interacting with? Like there's this question about who is worthy and who isn't. And Jesus then offers parables. The first two are shorter ones, and you know them very well if you're a Christian. If you don't, you can read them. It's about the, it's two things get lost. The uh, sheep gets lost and a coin. And in both cases, God is the one seeking for this thing that is lost. And he seeks relentlessly for it. And when he finds it, he's happy and he throws a party. Okay? So he's clearly showing that there is value here. He's saying this, that even when something is lost, God values it. And he values it the way, and I said this to the kids last week, I have six children. If I'm at the beach, or let's say in Niagara Falls with my kids, and one of them goes missing, you know, gets lost in the crowd, I don't look and say, yeah, you know what, we got five other ones. It's okay, you know, cut down on the food bill. Um, I wouldn't dare say that, they're my kids. So when one soul is lost, even if it's one you despise, think of the person, you know, people always say Hitler, you know, Charles Manson, we run to extremes. Think of whoever you want. When that soul is lost, God covets it. He wants it back and he'll hunt for it and he'll search for it over and over. There's value. And James Montgomery Boyce was this pastor of a Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. And he had this to say, you are valuable to God, even in your lost condition. You may be worthless in your own sight because you can only see what you have made of yourself. But you should learn that you are valuable to God because, unlike yourself, he is able to see what you were created to be and what he can yet make of you. And so, the parables come to show that there is value, Pharisees, in all those people that you've put in your hierarchy. Every one of them. Think of it modern context. We don't have the same categories. But what are they today? Liberals? Anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, I don't know what we call them. We, we, we all have a hierarchy in our heads of who we think is more godly and who's less. And Christ comes and he offends them terribly. Have you ever noticed it's always the religious people who are offended by Jesus? And just for the record, that's you and I. We should feel a little sting because these parables are meant to attack the religious, not the skeptics, you and I. So he comes. So these parables say it's about value, but then he turns this last parable, and it's much longer. It's actually the longest one his parables and he breaks it open and he talks about value but then he says hey there's three perspectives you can have about god pharisees and christians and world two of them are accurate and one of them or, sorry two are inaccurate and one is right and if we look at each of the characters both sons and then god the father we're going to see these perspectives and which ones why they're wrong how much we actually share some of them and then the only right perspective of god so it's very simple three things we're going to see a perspective of God being merciless, being a mercenary, and then being merciful, okay? Merciless, mercenary, and merciful. So merciless. Start with the younger son. So this story about with the younger son is intentionally not just heartbreaking. I think it is very heartbreaking. But it's also meant to be not a caricature, but an exaggeration. It was meant to shock even the original listeners who would say, gosh, no kid would behave like this. And there's clear signs of it. So let's look at very quickly what, it, what goes on. The first thing scholars have noted forever is he basically wishes his dad was dead because 
you don't get an inheritance unless the person who owns the stuff is dead. So when he comes to his father and says, give me my share, he is effectively saying, I wish you were dead. Now pretend like you were and give me your stuff. And it's even more shocking that the father agrees. But that's bad enough. Imagine how angry or how lost this guy must have been to wish his father dead for his stuff. But it goes even further. He would have got about a third, by the way. If you had two sons, the first son, the oldest, gets a double portion. So they get two-thirds. And the second son gets one-third. So he's given that one-third. But what's amazing is when he asks for it, he says, give me my share of the property. Now, and then right after it says, in God, and the father divided his property. Same English word, different Greek words. The first word he asks for is ousia, which is give me your wealth, give me your stuff. But then the father doesn't give him his stuff. It says, and the father divided his bios, his life among them. Interesting, why change the words? It's a, a couple of things you can look at. One is this was his life's work. His stuff is everything he did with his life. But there's also this sense that the father gives his life to his son, and then his son goes and scatters the bios, scatters his father's life in a, in a foreign land, wastefully, just throwing it out. So it's intentionally, it's heartbreaking. The father gives him his life, and he's just tossing it aside. Then it says he went and he hired himself out to a citizen, but it's not the word hired. It's the word joined. He joined himself together with that somebody else. Think about what's happening. He says, my father is incapable of giving me the life that I think I need and I deserve and I want. So I'm going to break ties. I'm going to untether myself from my father and I'm going to bind myself with this foreigner, this stranger. We do that constantly, don't we? Our kids have done that or will do that sometimes. Then he goes in this foreign land and he's then, of course, interacting with pigs, which everybody knows was a no-no in Jewish culture. So this guy is being presented as physically distant and estranged from his father, spiritually estranged from God as an unclean person, and emotionally estranged. Okay? Now, he finally comes to himself. I love the language in, that Luke uses, that Jesus uses. It says, he comes to himself and he rehearses. He says, you know, I'm going to go to my dad and here's what I'm going to say. We've all done that. We've rehearsed how we're, you know, the conversation we're going to have. And here's what he says, which you've read. He's, this is his rehearsal. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, in this statement, he has come to himself, but he has not come to God. Let me explain. He has come and he thinks, when it says, treat me as one of your hired servants, it's the word mystios. It means uh, a mercenary, somebody who's hired to do a job. Now, he comes with this, uh, this perspective of saying, I have... I'm unworthy to be a son, certainly, but I can make myself worthy again if I can just work for him. If he pays me, if I go into his house and obey him and do the right things, then I'll belong. I can't belong as a son, so my father, who will never forgive me, will at least take me on as a hired hand. That's a rotten way of thinking about God. It assumes that our God is merciless. It assumes, it's actually an insult to God. It is saying that, hey, God needs a certain standard. He's like a bureaucrat. You know, when you go get your, uh, pick anything you need to get from the city. If you don't have everything filled out just right, go home, come back again. Keep trying, keep trying. And this son, bless him, he realizes he's not worthy to be a son, but he thinks the way to get back into the house is to work for it. If I can just be a mystios, if I can just be a hired hand, then I'll belong. I'll earn my way back and he'll feed me. That's it. And he deep down is not convinced that God will forgive him. 
he thinks he has underachieved. And because he has underachieved, God can't forgive him. That's just the way it is. And Christians, boy, we do this all the time, don't we? We think God must be appeased. I've underachieved, so I better get myself in order. I better keep attending church. I better keep tithing. I better keep reading the Bible and studying it. Because if I don't, I'm going to underachieve. And then what? Because my father demands it. So the son, although he is getting there, and you're going to see at the end we talk with the father why this is even makes even more sense with what the father says to the son. But this is what he thinks. It's kind of like Bob Dylan. I was listening to Bob Dylan this week. Everybody knows who Bob Dylan was, or is. I guess he's still alive. Um, and he wrote a lot of anti-war songs in the 60s about the Vietnam War. And one of them is called Masters of War. And in it, he's just railing against the American government, right? Why are you sending these kids into a, to die in the jungles of Vietnam and so on? And at one point, he says, there's one thing I know for sure, that even Jesus would never forgive what you do. Now, I understand Bob Dylan is angry. But what he is saying when he says that is exactly what this, pro this prodigal son is saying. He is saying, Jesus has a limit. You can underachieve. There's a bar, and if you go under it, you're finished. And Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, Americans who were active at that time, you're all below it. Jesus would never forgive you. And that attitude actually separates you from God. The fact that he thinks that God is not forgive, can't forgive that much is actually an insult to God. So there's one wrong way of looking at God as if he's merciless. Okay, So that's the first perspective. The second perspective comes in this eldest son. Now let's recount that story just a little. First, I don't know if people realize this, but if you read the story carefully, you realize that the second son has not received his inheritance yet. Even though it says the father has divided it between them, he hasn't actually given the wealth to the eldest son. And we know that because if he had, then first the father would have no ability to say, let's throw a party and kill the fattened calf. So it looks like the father is holding on to it, and he's, but he said, this is yours when I pass on, you'll get it. And also, because the oldest son is angry, isn't he, that he doesn't get a party. If it was all the sons already, why would he care if his dad threw him a party? He could just throw himself a party. And it's even more obvious when you begin to see this son's anger. He's angry for a number of reasons. One of them is this. Because he hasn't yet received that inheritance, all the money being spent on this reprobate son who's returned is coming out of his inheritance. It's like, hey, you're squandering my future for this dog? What are you doing? You get the sense that he would prefer to have seen the money return, but the son not, his brother not come back. In fact, have you noticed the language? This son of yours has come back. And the father says, we did right to celebrate this, your brother. The language, he's your son. No, he's your brother. And you see the language. So this guy's angry. Okay, understandably, maybe a little. We're human. I think we can at least sympathize with him a little. But his motive for why he is such a good son shows up in his very comments. Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. That word served. In fact, if you have the NIV, I know a lot of people still read that. It says, all these many years I have slaved for you. I've been slaving for you. Because the word is doulos. It means serve. But it's also the one that Paul uses to speak about how we are douloses to sin, slaves to sin in, in Romans 6. And the word assumes compulsion. You're doing something because you have to. So the son gives away his hand. His poker face is gone at this point. And he shows us that the reason he has been such a good son is because he has been working for his position. I've been working really hard to be loyal to you, but you've never 
the fact that you've never given me anything, is, it, irks, you know, it irks him. And that shows that he was never laboring because he loved the Father, but because he loved his position. He wanted to keep his position in the house. And so here we have this weird par uh, paradox, don't we? The younger son thinks he's been excluded from the house because he's underachieved. And the older son says, no, I belong in the house because I've overachieved. And they're both wrong. Your underachievement cannot keep you from God, and your overachievement doesn't put God in your debt at all. But this is precisely what he thinks. He thinks that he has done this. And you see, when you think that your good works, and we never say this, you know, I could ask you and none of you would say that you think you're the older son. None of us ever think we are. But I assure you, many of us are. And you see it in the way that we live our faith. Because such a person as the older son is always going to be insecure. Because he thinks his belonging is based on his performance. And so anytime something happens that questions or that, that challenges his, 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 uh, his performance, he's going to feel like, oh, oh I'm, gonna, I'm losing it. You know, it's almost like, um, uh, think of our pastors. We're the simplest ones to poke on because I'm one. And the danger of pastors is they really like to be, they, they love it when you think we're, we love it when you think you're, you guys think we are smart. We love it. It's like heroin to us. And as a result, <laughs> I'm being very honest with you, and as a result, you know what anxiety guys like that have if they're not careful? They're always worried they're going to be found out for being a fraud. See, I have read every book I tell you I've read. I've studied, I've taken the classes, I've done everything I've said I do, but I still secretly think they're going to ask me a question I don't know. Something's going to happen I can't answer. And there's an anxiety in me if I'm not careful. That, I, that drives me to do my job better. It's an insecurity. I think that my position here is based on me being smarter than you sometimes. It's not true, but that's where the sin comes in. So a person like this is always insecure. Somebody who presents themselves as something is always worried about being found out as a fraud. The one who thinks they're really pretty is most terrified about being told they're ugly. The one who really pretends like they're a really great mom or, or dad is terrified you're gonna see how they really are at home. We're always insecure, and this son is insecure. And it's not just that, there's no joy in it then, because then you're doing it to try to keep the facade up. So there's no joy in his labor, because he's doing it to keep the, keep the thing going. And so he's racked with fear. So anytime something comes that challenges him, he lashes out against it. And this is where you see Christians becoming very good theologians, but terrible at converting people. You know, you're really good at keeping the house clean, Christians, but... Nobody's welcome in it, and nobody wants to come because you're obnoxious. Me too. This is the danger, but because we're so afraid. And it goes even more, we become super defensive when somebody then challenges the person who's insecure. Then, oh my goodness, the gloves come off, right? You think I haven't done enough to be, serve this church? I've been here 70 years. I put a brick in the place. You know, we start to defend our position, and not just, I'm not just picking on older people. Everybody does it. And this son right away gets defensive. And you see the problem with pride is you can't see anyone else celebrated without feeling slighted yourself. You can't lift up that son of yours because what about me? So it doesn't matter. You see, the person who's a great preacher struggles to listen to other preachers. You know why? We think no one does it better than me. That's what we think. And if we're not careful, we start to resent other preachers. And other mothers, don't you? I mean, I'm, I, I'm not a mother. Or fathers, do you... Do you feel just a bit of a shot when you see somebody else's perfect life on Instagram and Facebook? 
don't you feel just a little bit like, how can they have a good, they have all the breaks. They have more money than us. They have more time. They have a better house. They got a better husband. They got, like, don't we all think this way? We struggle. Pride does not like to see anyone but ourselves elevated. And then it goes even further. Pride puts God in our debt, we think. We think, listen, I've done this. You owe me, God. The Father owes him. I've been loyal to you, therefore you owe me. And I heard a pastor, he told a story, it's Tim Keller, Tim Keller in New York City, tells this story about how he was speaking to a woman about um, grace, and she was terrified. She said, I have to believe I did something to save myself. I could, it can't be free. And he says, why are you so afraid of free grace? And her response is this, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Profound. She's terrified, but she's right. You see, if you had something to do with your salvation, if you had something to do with your being found, then you could say, ho, 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 I'm not going to Africa. There's no mission work here. I'm not giving my 10%. I'm not going to church every week. I've got, I've got golf and a football. I'm not doing it. And the reason you could do that is because you'd say, I don't really owe you anything. I came to you by my genius, by my cleverness, by my hitting rock bottom. Thank you, God, for your help, but I was involved here. So there'd be a limit on how much God could ask of you, and you could justifiably say, no thanks. You see, this workplace pays me a salary, but I work for it. And because I work for it, nobody's going to hold it over my head and say, I pay your salary. I don't care. You're not, it's not just that. You're not paying my salary. I work for it. It's not like it's a gift, right? I'm working for it. So there's certain limits of what you can ask me for. Not many limits, I must say. But there are limits of what you can ask me for. But what if I did nothing and you give it to me? Then it's different, wouldn't it? You could, have, you could say whatever you want, especially if it was an infinite cost to you. And this woman is right in what she says. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of the churches I was at, I had this wonderful woman of God, but she had chronic pain. And she was always in pain. And she, um, she, I remember speaking to her once after a service. And every morning she would pray and read Psalm 91 over herself. Psalm 91, if you don't know, is a very, it's a song of trust. It's, uh, it's very comforting. It's about God protecting you and healing you and delivering you from trouble. And she said, Carl, Pastor Carl, I have read this psalm every day for the last 20 years when I wake up. First thing on my lips, why am I still suffering? You see, she had come, and bless her, she's a wonderful woman, but she had come to see the psalm as some kind of a spell, an amulet. If I just say these words, if I just show my faith and I am faithful enough, God will have to save me. He says so. And now why isn't he? Because he owes me. I put, in my, I put my money into the vending machine. I've put my time in, I've trusted him, and he hasn't come through for me, which reveals to me that she doesn't want Jesus, she wants what he can do for her. Now listen, we're all in that boat, so I'm not condemning her entirely, we're all there. But this is the danger of the older son. We think that our service puts God in our debt. God owes you nothing. Nothing. That's harsh, isn't it? But it makes it all the more beautiful that he's given you everything. And we have to come to terms with that. Otherwise, we're always going to feel like this poor woman who is struggling at the last days of her life and she's going to be thinking, I'm confused. I did everything, didn't I? Why am I still hurting? 
So we have to be very careful. So we are estranged when we think that we can lose our place by underachievement uh, and when we think that we can earn our place by overachievement. Both separate us from God. So if we have these two perspectives of the two sons, much more could be said. Um, and far better men have said much more about this psalm than I, this parable than I can. And, but let's move to the father now. He's merciful. So he's not merciless, like the first son thought. He's not a mercenary. I can't buy him off with my work. So, but he's merciful. Now, does anybody know what the word prodigal even means? People, I mean, I, I mean, when I was a young Christian, I assumed prodigal meant returning because the prodigal son, right? He's coming back. That's not what it means. Prodigal means wasteful. Wasteful, reckless, you know, spend, just, just you know, spending like a sailor, like Mac the Knife. I mean, no Mac the Knife? Am I really old now? Yeah. Um, I am old, I guess. So that's what it means. He spends recklessly. And the sons are reckless. They are prodigal. Both of them are prodigal. One is spending resources and money recklessly. The other one is spending his work recklessly to try to earn something. But God is reckless, is, is prodigal in this. Let me explain what I mean by reckless. God is prodigal. In fact, there's books called The Prodigal God. There's a very popular song that the worship team sang. I don't know if we've sung it here or not, but it's, I don't even know who wrote it. But it says, it's, about, it's called Reckless Love, I think, about God being reckless. Now, I caution using that word for one reason. It seems reckless, but it's not. God's love, it seems reckless to you and I because it's ridiculous. Like, who would do the, what he does? But reckless assumes thoughtless, like he's just scattering it around. That's not what God is doing. It's intentional, it's thoughtful, but it does seem reckless to us because it's so different. And that's one of the things we have to realize here. Jesus is intentionally painting the picture of a prodigal God, a God that you would think impossible. No father would behave like this. And he's right. No, none of us would behave like this father. But let's do a quickly walk through it. The first thing, uh, we go in some order, is he accepts the suicide request. Basically, his, his son says, you know, I wish you were dead. And he accepts it. He says, okay, you can have your, your share. Let me use two examples. One is from a Jewish document, one from a Roman one. A Jewish book called Sirach in, in chapter 33 says this. This is the instruction to fathers. To son or wife, to brother or friend, do not give power over yourself as long as you live. And do not give your property to another in case you change your mind and must ask for it. While you are still alive and have breath in you, do not let anyone take your place. For it is better that your children should ask from you than that you should look to the hand of your children. At the time when you end the days of your life, in the hour of, your, of death, distribute your inheritance. So, Jews were given very clear examples or instructions. Dads, don't give your inheritance early. Don't do it. In fact, Deuteronomy 21 says you should stone the son who is rebellious because he's going to influence the entire city. So... That's one thing. And then it's not just Jewish culture. Roman culture, there's this public notice that was found that would have been pinned to a notice board in the center of a town. And in it, these parents say this, since our son, Castor, along with others by riotous living, have squandered all his own property and now has laid hands on ours and desires to scatter it, on that account, we are taking precautions, lest he should deal despitefully with us or do anything else amiss. We beg, therefore, that a proclamation be set up that no one any longer should lend him money. So culturally, what this father is doing is backwards. No one in the culture would have said, good idea, dad. This is very King Lear. In fact, Shakespeare uses it in King Lear as a, an example of poor leadership to divide your, your, your land. Now, it goes even further. 
he keeps watching. The assumption is that he's watching and waiting for this kid to come back, which, why would he? You're supposed to cut off your son. Why are you waiting for him to come back? What, are, what evidence do you have that he's going to come back? But he watches anyway, even though it looks foolish. He then runs, and every scholar, every commentator will say, men in that culture, when you hit a certain age, don't run, right? You know, you have to hike up your skirt. And you look kind of, I mean, imagine Doug Ford uh, climbing a tree. Um, it's, going to be, it's kind of weird, isn't it? It's weird to see people do things like that. And yet this father risks shame and hikes up his pants or his, his, his tunic there, and he runs. Aside from that, he forgives immediately, and then a party comes right away. This approach led one scholar, Susan Eastman, to say this, by both ancient and modern standards, the exemplary father in the parable of the prodigal son is a foolish parent. His foolish actions reveal an economy of grace that opens the door to repentance and reconciliation by forgiving debts and exercising unaccountable generosity. Now, this is the key. She's hit the nail on the head here. There is something that happens that caught my eye this week. The son, we'll put up on the screen, when the son rehearses his, his speech, what he's going to say to his dad, the first thing he says, and I'll read it from here, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now look at the last part. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But when he meets the father, he says everything word for word, but, he does, but the father doesn't allow him ask to become a servant. He cuts him off, but the father got involved. Why? Because the father is saying very clearly, there is no place for a servant in the house of God. Only sons. No mystioses. Only aoses. Only sons. And the son thinks, oh, I'll become a hired hand. Then I'll belong. And God says, no, no, no. That's not how you belong in my house. You belong by repenting. You've repented. That you know you're unworthy is enough. No need to come and work for me now. There's no debt to be paid off. It's been paid. The debt's covered. And the fact that he cuts that off is absolutely vital to this story. And it shows us what he is showing the sons. He is saying this. He's, he's accepting the underachiever without demanding that he overachieve to belong. But then he turns to the overachieving elder son and he assures him that he doesn't need to earn it. He's continually pointing to grace. And so we repent. You and I repent. When we come to see how, um, when God shows us his prodigality, his reckless love and grace for us in Christ. When we see that Christ, the, the classic and perfect overachiever, was treated as an underachiever for us. When we see that he did everything, everything, he paid the price for the underachiever and the overachiever. He did it entirely. So that when we run to the Father, he can run out and come to us. No need to ask to be a hired servant. No need to say, I'll work on these committees if you help me. No, the debt's paid. And then you serve in the house, not because Carl's asking you to. Well, that's a good idea too. But not because of that. You, you, you come out and then you serve and you love and you transform the world by the gospel, not because you're trying to earn salvation or keep it or because you think God's a taskmaster, but because you're so overcome by this God who has done this for you. And if you're a Christian, you're asking, you're, today, I'm calling you back to that this opportunity to see that you're being called back to this gracious God. You may have been off for a while and thinking, I haven't been at church for a while. Maybe I'm too afraid of COVID. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being lazy. Maybe I don't love the house enough. I don't know why I'm back. I'm saying, you belong in the house. You're a son. And I say son, even if you're a woman, not because I'm being sexist, but because in the ancient world, daughters had no real rights. 
When God says you are a son of God, he's not being sexist. He's saying, I'm going to treat you who the culture doesn't, who despises, the culture despises you, but I'm going to treat you like the highest ones of the culture. I'm going to give you the rights of a son, even though you're not a son. That's what God is calling us to. And if you're a skeptic who happens to be here or somebody on the margins who's not quite a Christian, this is you being called back. Called back out of these wrong perspectives into the right perspective of God. And I'll close with this quote by Craig Blomberg, a great, great scholar. These are people whom God is wooing, calling home, assuring them. The door is always open. Forgiveness is always possible. The only unforgivable sin in Scripture is the sin of unbelief, committed by those who don't want to repent and be saved and who, ever, who never change their minds. And he's right. The only unforgivable sin, it saves me from preaching that little part, remember? What's the unforgivable sin? Is when you refuse to accept this truth that there's grace available for you. Because if you, if you say, nope, I don't need the grace, you're one of those sons. You think, he won't forgive me, I've screwed up too much. Or you'll say, you don't need to save me, I'll save myself with my work. The only unforgivable sin is lack of faith. So we're being called this morning to accept this prodigal God and then to become like him because in our world there's lots of both, both sons. But there's not many father figures, is there, bringing reconciliation and bearing the cost of shame. Instead, it's much easier to judge people and hammer them and cancel them. But there's not as many fathers, so we're called radically into this grace, but then radically pushed out into the world to show that grace. Let's pray.